Hello and welcome to the Phenomenon Report. I'm Kelly Kleinman. Today's guest is a gentleman who has been involved in ufology for quite some time. He is the former director of investigations for Bufora, the British UFO Research Association, and he is a former MUFON representative in uh, in England. So Philip Mansell is with us today. He's an international UFO researcher, lecturer, and broadcaster. His books have been published in six different languages around the world, and those titles include Without Consent, The Day After Roswell, The Rev. Father Gill File, UFO Case Files of Russia, and many others, including both of Calvin Parker's books. Uh, of course, Calvin Parker was involved in the Pascagoula abduction incident. Today, we'll be discussing the new revised edition of Without Consent, amongst other subjects. Philip Mansell, welcome to the Phenomenon Report. Uh, good evening, Kelly. Nice to speak to you. I just want to, want to rectify one thing there. I, wasn't, I didn't write the day after Roswell. It was beyond Roswell. Was oh, I'm sorry. Beyond Roswell. The day after Roswell was Phil Corso. That's correct. Exactly. I would have swapped them quite gladly. That became a bestseller on the New York Times. So, uh, you know, but uh, no, unfortunately not. Yes, I know Phil, uh, Bill Burns, who co-wrote that with them. But that's what I was trying to, I was thinking today earlier before we went on, wait, the day after Roswell, what, what, what was Phil Corso's book? They could have had the same title, so my bad. Okay. So what interested UFOs to begin with? Uh, for me, it was Major Donald Kehoe's book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space. What was your inspiration? Mine was um, probably my mother, although she, she didn't have any direct interest. Um, my mother was from uh, a very rural part of Northern Ireland. And um, she told me many times when I was uh, growing up of uh, an encounter she had uh, not with a, a, an alien, but a fairy on the farm where they lived. She used to go down and play by the stream. And she said one day, son, I, I met this little fairy, a little lady fairy with a, you know, pretty clothes and wings and all that kind of stuff. And she conversed with it. She talked with it. And um, it, it gave her a little bottle to drink out of. And, uh, you know, I asked her many people when I grew up, I said, you know, mom, was that real? She says, well, it was real to me, son. And she told my children, you know, the same story. So, <clears throat> you know, even from a, a young age, Kelly, I was always interested in all things paranormal, <clears throat> you know. And um, I remember when I, well, I would have been about 13 or 14, quite literally, my best friend's grandmother lived right opposite us on the same street. And she used to attend the spiritualist church. So I went a few times with her and I found it absolutely fascinating, you know, didn't necessarily agree with everything they were claiming, but nonetheless, it, it, it got me interested. And I was also interested in things like the space program and science fiction and, you know, and then I read uh, one book, um, a book on astronomy, actually, and I can't remember the name um, to this day, but it had one chapter on UFOs basically kind of dismissing them really you know but nonetheless that that got me interested so I, I read more this was the days when you wanted information you had to read about it you couldn't google it you know <laughs> and um of course i saw the spielberg movie close encounters and in 19 um late 1978 over into 1979 i went to work in west germany for a few months uh, couldn't speak the language, so my mother sent me a parcel of books to read, 
and they were pretty much all about UFOs. I think she'd bought them secondhand on a market somewhere, you know. So that strengthened my interest. And it just so happened when I returned home, uh, my aunt, uh, who lived around the corner from us, she brought me our local evening newspaper. And in it was a small ad for the formation. I live in, I live in a county called Yorkshire. And I live near a city called Leeds. And it was for the formation of the Yorkshire UFO Society. It was their first meeting coming up that Sunday in Leeds. Now, in those days, on a Sunday here in the UK, everything used to close. You know, it was completely almost shut down. So I got the bus into Leeds and I found this location. And, and the Yorkshire UFO Society was uh, formed by two brothers, Mark and Graham Birdsell. And there was about, I don't know, 20, 30 people at this meeting. And um, Graham and Mark put on a presentation. Uh, they'd already been involved in the subject for a few years. And I just felt like I'd, I, you know, I'd found my niche, Kelly. I felt at home. I was, I was really happy that they also had some more books that I could buy, you yeah. know. And um, I went to the, we had meetings there about once a month. And after about six months, I finally stepped forward and said, I want to get more involved, you know, and, and, and that's how it all began, you know, uh, as simple as that, really. And I, I, we went on from there. Hey, I'm going to have you um, turn your microphone up just a little bit if we can do it. I think you're probably, yeah, that might be a little bit, that might be better. That's fine. That's okay. That's, that's um, interesting, actually, uh, that that was your source of inspiration. They've written books. I mean... I know that Graham Birdsall, I, I, I know that name. Well, Graham, um, many years later, went on to publish yeah. and edit UFO magazine. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, it was different that's to right. the one in America. And I mean, at, at its height, Graham sold 40,000, 50,000 copies a time. You know, yeah. uh, the magazine was hugely successful. Mm -hmm. And we actually started at the Yorkshire UFO Society. We used to make our own newsletter. We called it the UFOS Journal. Mm -hmm. Print about 30 copies. And we used to print it on an old hand gastetna machine. So <laughs> rotate this thing. Um, Mark Birdsell, Graham's younger brother, he lived in, a, in an apartment, a flat. So we upgraded later on to a, a, a printing machine. And I remember it being... <coughs> It was a second-hand thing, and I was praying that the lifts would be working. We had to go up seven stories with this thing, you know. Sure. And we got it set up. We didn't know how to work it. Yeah. So we left that to Mark. So then we produced um, what we called Quest magazine, and it was printed, you know, one page at a time. The old hand machine had gone. We now were really high-tech. We had a printing machine, but we still had to hand-collate it and staple it, you know. Yeah. So that's, that was the formations, really, of, of, of UFO magazine. And I still have copies of them here now, and they bring back a lot, a lot of happy memories, Kelly. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I might have uh, some UFO magazine uh, issue, uh, issues as well. The UFO magazine from the States. I, do you know Don Ecker? Have you spoken to Don Ecker? Yeah, I mean, but, but that, was, that was originally called California UFO when it first started. You know, uh, it was a lady who was the editor, and then Vicky, it lay Vicky, yeah. Don, uh, Vicky, they're good friends of mine. Yeah, and then it went on to be UFO magazine with Don and Vicky Ecker, and then of course with uh, Bill and Nancy Burns, and sadly it, it closed right. a few years ago. 
So yes, I, I had copies of that probably right from right from the very first one. Yeah, that's classic, classic stuff. So what, let's get into some of the, before we get into the book and what you've, uh, and the new version of it, the revised edition, um, what would you consider the three to four most compelling cases in your years investigating UFOs that would turn even the most staunch skeptic? Well, for me, uh, it's a case not in the UK. You mentioned it in the introduction. It's, it's um, the, what's known as the Pascagoula case, which yeah. involved uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. That took place in Pascagoula, Mississippi on October the 11th, 1973. At that point, Cal uh, Calvin was 18 and his, his, his companion, Charles Hickson, was 42 years of age. Um, and they went fishing one night on the Pascagoula River. And as they were driving in, Calvin was driving, they saw a sign that said, you know, no entry. And so they parked up and they started fishing and then these blue lights came from behind them and Calvin thought, it's the police, <laughs> you know, we've had it. We're going to get locked up for the night. Of course, when they turned around, it wasn't the police. It was this oval object with two lights at one end. And there was, you know, they were had an abduction experience. They reported it to Keesler Air Force Base and then the sheriff. Uh, Charlie died uh, in 2011. And I actually met up with Calvin a couple of years ago. Uh, and I published two books by him. What happened though, Kelly, you know, Calvin hadn't told his full story, so he told his own story, but then he did some local media and other people started coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, actually, because where the incident happened, he's not in the middle of the nowhere. There's the huge, great Highway 90 bridge runs across the river. You can see it, you know, it's, it's just off the beaten track, but it's not in the middle of nowhere. And um, even, in, even, even Charlie Hickson reported that, that others had seen it. So, but others came out of the woodwork. And um, when you put all of that information together, you know, I, I reckon we could take that particular incident to court and prove that something, you know, did happen to, the, to those gentlemen that night. Of course, okay. Alan Hynek was there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that, that, that is one. We have... Um, uh, a case here in the UK that happened not far from where I live, um, but it goes back to the summer of 1980. Now, I, I, I'm from a, um, a mining community. My, my, I lived in a little village when I was born. You either worked in the coal mine or in the local mill or in some such industry. Well, my father worked in the coal mines all his life. Just a few miles away, there's a town called Normanton, and this whole area was coal mining. And in the summer of 1980, uh, a lady by the name of Mrs. Westerman was in the house washing the dishes after lunch. And five of her children were outside playing a ball game. And they lived in a cul-de-sac and it was an elevated house. So you had to walk up the front up steps to get into it. And what, the kids come running in and said, mom, mom, there's an airplane landed in the fields. At the bottom of this cul-de-sac is some fields and some trees and some electricity pylons. So she opened the front door and she could see out over this field. And she says, Philip, there was this thing on the ground that looked like a Mexican hat, but it was like a silver gray in color. So she got the children, off they went. They went down a little dip and they lost sight of it. They come up the other side and there's a fence 
And she says, now there's three tall men, all dressed in white with a visor over them and they're waving something across the ground. Now the children weren't scared at all. They were trying to get over the fence and she held them back. These three men walked round the back of this thing and it raised up, stopped and shot off into a clear blue sky. Now I interviewed Mrs. Westerman along, my colleague Mark Birdsell did as well, and the children. They never called it a spaceship or aliens or anything like that. We even interviewed one of the children's friends. He had actually gone home for his lunch. And then he came back and he missed it all. And he, you know, he, he confirmed how excited and, and everything. Um, so that was in the summer of 1980. What is, what is curious, um, Kelly, is earlier this year I did a, a radio show. And a lady in New Zealand listened to it. And I talked about this particular incident, although I didn't mention the lady's name. I didn't say Mrs. Westerman. And a lady in New Zealand said, I'm interested in that case she talked about in Normanton. I used to live there. She says, what was the name of, of the family? So I says, it was Mrs. Westerman. She says, no, no, it can't be. She says, my best friend was called Westerman, but now she's married. I'll contact her. So she contacted her and it, she is indeed one of those children I, I interviewed way back in 1980. So I've been in contact with her and she has confirmed, yes, we saw this, we saw the creatures or beings, whatever you want to call them. And um, she doesn't want to get involved anymore because she's now grown up, got her own family. But she, you know, she confirmed everything again. So those, those are two other cases, you know, and I could go on, you know, I could, I, I could list others, but that'll sort of give you the flavor, if you like. Give us, give us two more. And the reason I ask is because we just had Calvin on. He sends his regards, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he says hello in his uh, own uh, unique way. It's more like, oh, yeah, I got to tell you, uh, <laughs> Philip's a good guy. He's, uh, you know, that, that draw. I can't do the accent. I, I cannot. Thick. Great guy. And I'm a big fisherman too. We got along swimmingly. So he sends his uh, best regards to you. And, um, and he said that you, uh, now you have another, well, we'll get into that. Maybe we'll do another one of these. Um, but he had mentioned something about the 93 um, yes. situation with him, which we have not even gotten into. And it was something no. that I did want to, to discuss with you on some level, because he uh, said that that was fairly compelling. We didn't broach that subject though uh, give me one more and then let's well, get into let's another one that's sort of well-known well known in the uk yeah. and uh it features a police officer and uh, this goes back to november 1980 and it was police constable alan godfrey uh, and again it's in the county where i live but it's on the outskirts he was in a town called todmorden and he was on night shift in his patrol car and Alan had been looking for some cows that had been reported missing. Couldn't find them. So he thought, I finish about six o'clock. I'll have one last look for these cows. He went down to the town. It's only a small place. He saw an officer on foot patrol and, you know, they had a, a few words. He set up through the main road through Todmorden. And um, up ahead, he, he could see this light on the road. No. Because he was, he was going to turn off and he, this, this caught his attention. And of course, as he approached it in the patrol car, 
it wasn't just a line, there was a, an object blocking the whole road. It described it as like a children's spinning top. It was dark colored, it had a bank of panels across the top, but the bottom part was spinning. And you could even see some debris on the road that was swirling around, you know, twigs and things like that. He tried to get through to the police station on his radio, but he couldn't. So he took out his notepad and drew this thing, you know? And then the next thing he remembers is several hundred yards beyond where this object had been driving the patrol car. No recollection of, of setting off or anything. So he turned around. Now it had been raining during the night, but where this object had been, the tarmac on the road was dry. You could see where it had been. So he went back to the police station and he was late. Couldn't understand why he was, you know, 15, 20 minutes late. There was no reason for it. He actually reported the incident. Uh, a few days later, he was asked to write a, an official report that was sent to the Ministry of Defence. So several months passed and uh, Alan was bemused by this, this period of missing time. It really bothered him. And he worked with a, a, a solicitor uh, uh, called Harry Harris from Manchester. Mm -hmm. Harry Harris hired two psychiatrists, two professional psychiatrists, and they put Alan under regressive hypnosis on three occasions. Each time at the end of the session that they put a suggestion in that Alan wouldn't remember it. So he had no recollection. But what they did, they actually filmed the hypnosis on video. And at the end of it, they invited Alan along and showed him the video. And um, not many people have seen that, that video, Kelly. I've seen it. What you see is Alan, you know, he sat in the police car. Now, Alan was the kind of police officer you really didn't want to mess with. You know, it was no nonsense. If it was a minor thing, he'd probably tell you to go home and don't be so stupid. But if you, if you were, you know, if you crossed his path, he didn't, he, he didn't really want to. Anyway, he throws his hands up like this. There's this blinding light hits him. Uh, he recoils. He then finds himself on board this thing. He sees this man, or you know, with a little white beard and a cap. Uh, it's called Joseph. He also sees these other creatures that he says their heads look like a light bulb. You know, he, he recoils. They're ugly. Ooh. And um, yeah, yeah, not too, not too different from that. And he, he's, he's, he's told to get on a table and he, he, at one point he says, how did you do that? So the hypnotist asked him, what are you talking about, Alan? He can actually hear them speaking in his head, but they're not moving their mouths. So, you know, Alan went on television, he, he, he talked about his encounter. And he'll tell you, you know, Philip, if I had got out of the police car and had a brick, I could have thrown it at that thing and it would have gone clunk. You know, and he, he finished in the police force a couple of years later. He got injured in the line of duty. Mm -hmm. And uh, his, his story has never changed since that, that time, Kelly, you know. It's and Alan is one of those people he had more to lose than gain by, by telling this story, you know. Um, he thinks it did play a part in him having to finish in the police force, but um, but so there you go. It's it's a well known case. It really is. Yeah. Well, let's dig into this new edition of Without Consent. 
now that our DOD here has all but admitted UFOs or uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, are out there flying with impunity, I guess we're free to speculate on a real phenomenon now and basically the alien mission here on Earth. Tell me about uh, some of the new additions to Without Consent. What, uh, what made you decide to go ahead and, and take a look at that and add to it? Yeah, well, the, the original version of Without Consent, for those that are not aware, it deals with um, cases of alien abduction and missing time in the UK only, you know, nowhere else. Mm -hmm. We published it. My, my colleague, Carl Negatis, is a former Fleet Street journalist, worked on all the national newspapers here. He then went on to run a successful public relations company of his own. And um, it, we originally published it in, in 1994. The reason for updating it now was because of the, as, as we've said, that certainly the last, last couple of years has been um, a lot of added interest in the subject because of the Department of Defense, the release of their videos, their admissions and so on. But I also have to remember that not everyone's been in the subjects as long as I have. Yeah. So there's new people coming into the subjects so they can pick this book up and it doesn't have to be a, a revised edition it's just something they've never seen before yeah so it's it, plus i had time in the lockdown we've all been in lockdown and um my, my research into this part of the phenomena hadn't stopped it didn't finish when the book was published kelly so we had some files that were you know in my old filing cabinet in paper format you know so i dug them out plus i had new material from you know people elsewhere in the uk so I thought, well, now's the time. And we were able to access documents and things like that that perhaps weren't available back in 1994, and they've been included in the book. So, you know, it's, it's all there for everyone to see. And we speculate, you know, what these may be, uh, but we just allow the reader to make up their own mind. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell them what, what to think. You know, here is our evidence. Here is our case histories. You decide for yourself what you make of them. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the question is, why are they here? Do they have multiple mission objectives? You know, and I ask this because, and you alluded to a schoolyard or a situation where there were children involved, and there have been a number of schoolyard incursions witnessed by many school-aged children who aren't taken rather telepathically messaged uh, that we're killing the planet and generally acting a fool. Um, I do believe there was a case in England as well um, that was not publicized uh, very widely regarding school children. What are, what is, what do you think? What, what are some of your, what is some of your speculation as to why they're here? Curious. Well, the question is, you know, this, I think for me, I think, you know, we can say as far as UFOs are concerned, I told you so. They do exist. Yeah, it you feels know. good, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, after 40-some years of involvement, it feels great. Yeah. But yeah. we must still ask that question, what is the nature and origin of this phenomena? Uh, for example, I asked a number of these witnesses, these abductees of the, they've been known. You've had the experience, not me. What do you think lies behind it, you know? And, and they're as, as puzzled as the rest of us, really, Kelly. I mean, some thought they were definitely aliens from wherever. Others thought, no, it, could this be some kind of spiritual experience? Others said, I've just no idea. I, I don't know. 
you know. Um, so I think the the question of of what lies behind the UFO phenomena is still open, and I don't, I, th I I think it will be far more. It'll either go two ways. The, the the answer has been staring us in the face all the time. We've just been too dumb to recognize it, you know. And somebody someday will go, oh, there it is, you know, da -da, and it will all fall into place. Or perhaps otherwise, the phenomenon is so complicated that we as a species are simply unable to, to understand it. For example, I, I run a small publishing company. It's just me. It's called Flying Dish Press. I published a book by a, a, a Romanian scientist, Dr. Dan Farkas. It's called Hypercivilizations. And what Dan postulates, his theory is that, yes, we are being visited by beings from another world, but they are perhaps hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years in advance of us. And we as on the evolutionary scale are just too stupid to be able to understand what's going on. For example, he said, if you put a, a television set in an ant's nest, the ants will know it's there, they'll crawl all over it, they'll even attack it, you know, when they work ants, but they'll never in a million years be able to figure out what this thing is. So he speculates that we are the intergalactic ants in this situation. And uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do before we can even get a, a hint of what, what may be going on. But it could be something entirely different. It's just, just one idea. You know, I don't, I don't think whatever the UFO phenomenon is, Kelly, is that easy to figure out. Otherwise, we'd have done it a long, long time ago. It's either m much simpler than we, we think, or it's much more complicated than we can imagine. So, well, well one, you see, one of the things I think we do as, as UFO investigators is we document the information in the hope that somebody somewhere will be able to put it all together and try and figure out the whole picture. Pretty much like, you know, the early astronomers did. They had no idea what they were looking at or what they were dealing with, but they recorded things. And of course, it was many generations later that, you know, we finally, our science caught up, was able to figure it out, of course. So I think the UFO phenomenon is, is something like that. We might be catching up fast, or we might be still be miles behind. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. You know, a researcher and an investigator's job is to look for patterns. And you could see different patterns emerging depending on the event that takes place. I'll give you an example. You have the Malmstrom incident. You have the Bentwaters incident. You have, I believe, the Loring uh, Air Force Base incident. You've got, what, what you have is a technology that appears to be disarming our nuclear capability. And then you have cattle mutilations. You have people being abducted and being tested. And of course, perhaps with, in, in Calvin's in, situation, at the beginning of that interview, I noted that whenever our biologists go out into the field and take specimens, they generally tag that specimen and catch up to them later on. And that's when Calvin mentioned the 1993. So I was suggestive of the fact that something might have happened even beforehand. And he says, you know, 
back when I was a kid, my brother saw a being in the room with us that was like whispering into my ear. When I felt my ear, my ear was, was felt like a liquidy, it felt wet. And yep. the, the brother was panic stricken. So there appears to be samples being taken. People do see what look like human beings on some of these craft. Yep. Uh, in Calvin's inci uh, particular uh, incident, these robots seem to be created, fashioned, designed to be able to capture humans, inject them, calm them down, and then go ahead and work their uh, examination accordingly. So it appears as though samples are being taken. There's a certain degree of disarming that takes place. Nothing that shows us that they're literally attacking us. They're definitely able to defend themselves. There have been so many incidences of attracting fire and the fire having no effect on them whatsoever or as in one case in vietnam and you know these cases bill you you're yeah. more of an active researcher than me where the ordinance was actually sent back at the people that were originally shooting it so it was drawing fire and just somehow some way rejecting that ordinance and and directing it back at the people who were originally firing and of course you've got the iranian uh, fighter pilot incident as well there's so much of that so there do seem to be certain patterns, uh, and it still remains to be seen exactly what the overall mission objective is. But there may be multiple races that are each have a different objective. Uh, we don't know. How many races of aliens do you think they are? And do you think that we're being hybridized and that aliens, in some sense, are, are amongst us now? Well, you know, it's a difficult, difficult question, Kelly. When you look at, you know, the, the phenomena worldwide, um, there tends to be a cultural influence on the way these things are reported. You know, it, largely in the United States, for example, not exclusively, and not in all cases, you have the small little gray alien creatures. Um, in other parts of the world, like in Britain, we have a mixture of things. Uh, some really weird and wonderful things. If you go back to, we mentioned him there, we'll stick with him for now, Calvin Parker, the creatures that he saw, him and Charles, were unique to them. He doesn't know if they were robots, he, he thinks they may be, they removed in a, a, you know, an automated manner. They were humanoid, they had no neck, they had no eyes, they had carrot-like protrusions coming out the front and out the sides, their pincer-like hands, their legs were stuck together, their ne legs never moved, they floated, they didn't walk. Their surface was like the skin of an elephant, gray and wrinkly. Um, but that is unique to, to Calvin and Charlie's case. Yeah. I, I can't find it anywhere else in the UFO literature, and I can assure you I've tried, mm -hmm. you know. But what is interesting is Calvin and Charlie both reported that they, when these creatures got hold of them, they felt a, a, a prick, as if they'd been injected. Calvin said, when that happened, you know, I was, I was alarmed to begin with. That just relaxed me straight away. Similarly, coming off the UFO, the same thing happened again. What is fascinating is that Calvin lost all his paperwork. You know, he was in Hurricane Katrina. His house was under, I don't know, 15 foot of water. So when I met him, he had nothing. So one of the things I did 
was set off on a, a search for paperwork. And one of the files I obtained, because I, I started with the, the UFO organizations who were around at the time, Alan Hynek had shortly afterwards formed the Center for UFO Studies. And Hynek was on site in Pascagoula within, I think, 24, 48 hours of it happening. So I contacted them, amongst others. The Center for UFO Studies sent me a PDF file that they had on Pascagoula. Most of it was newspaper cuttings. But in it, Kelly, is one page, a one-page document that is typewritten on an old typewriter. And it's dated the day after, it's dated the 12th of October. And it talks of Calvin and Charlie being given a physical examination. And both men, in inverted commas, had injection marks. Hmm. So it kind of proves what Calvin was saying, sure. you know. Uh, and it's fascinating. But the problem we have is, and it's not, well, I say problem, is that the, the creatures that Calvin saw were unique to that one incident. And you, there are other incidents around the world where the creatures or beings or aliens, whatever you want to call them, are unique to that incident. We have a landing case here in the UK from back in the 70s. Seeing my, you mentioned a schoolboy, uh, he was at the sea, seaside with his father. Mm -hmm. And he, he crawled up the rocks, and his father could see him crawl up the rocks, got to the top, not but not far. And he he hid. This this young boy hit, bobbed down and hid behind a rock, and his father thought, "What's he doing?" But he'd actually seen a UFO on the ground, and the creatures in it were like a, a jelly shaped almost. Now the top opened, so this young boy ran back down to his father and said, "Dad, Dad, you know." They're coming. And then he run back up again. And his father thought, what, what, what on earth is he on about, you know? And, of course, when the young boy scrambled back up the rocks, this thing had gone. Now, I, again, I can't find anything that matches this anywhere else in, in the literature. So to say how many different, you know, types of creatures are reported, I think it's, you know, almost impossible, Kelly. You know, it really, it really is. Uh, if you go back to the Soviet Union, uh, in the late 1980s, there was a landing case at Voronezh. Mm -hmm. And um, TASS, the, the official Soviet news agency, actually released this story. And, of course, the creatures seen there were seven-foot-tall, big, muscular things, you know. Um, and, again, never seen mention of that anywhere else in the, in the UFO literature. So it, it's, a, it's a very difficult question. It really is. What I would say is that there are lots of different beings reported in different parts of the world. You know, my uh, very good friend of mine, uh, we went to high school together, we roomed in college. He funded a company called Film Nation and their biggest success was The Arrival. And they portrayed those aliens as squids, yeah. which is interesting. So yeah, you really don't know, you know, what's out there. And it, it might be something that's so... It's right in front of us, and they're here, and we don't even know it because we accept them as being normal fauna, so to speak. It's well, it's like the it's like the spectrum of light, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we only see part of that spectrum. Right. Other creatures see different parts of it. We have equipment that can show you other bits of it, like infrared and, yeah. and so on, uh, but we only see part of the spectrum. 
could well be, you know, like we've said before, that the answer is right, you know, it's right there, but we're just too dumb as a species to notice it. And I think, I think it was interesting with the, with the Department of Defense and the Navy saying that um, they believed that the reason they now began to observe these things and track them was because they got a new radar system. So was it this upgrade in the new radar that finally enabled them to see what had always been there in the first yeah. place? You know, yeah. um, just an insight, you know, I, I remember reading that and saying, well, you know, I never thought of that. It could well be, you know, they may have seen it visually before or, but, but now they have this new radar and they, hey, hey, presto, look what we've got, you know, They're everywhere. Yeah. Two things come to mind. First thing is that, we have life forms in the water. We have life forms on land. We have birds that fly in the air and bugs that fly in the air. But why can't we have a life form that actually exists in the upper atmosphere? And it could be photoluminescent from time to time. And that could account for some of the UFO sightings or just a form of being or consciousness that exists in the different levels of the, uh, the atmosphere. That's one thing. Uh, the, the other thing is, I guess we just can't, um, if you can imagine the most the strangest possible scenario, as far as, you know, a life form is concerned, you know, you, you're, they probably exist somewhere in the universe. It's, if you can imagine it, it probably exists somewhere. So the idea that we're being visited by an amazing amount of species. I mean, I, I'll give you an, another example of just the, the sheer volume of visitations. And this I got from Don Ecker probably 25 years ago. Somehow, some way he had some access to some information dealing with deep space platforms. And they were detecting 2,500 objects per month, roughly, coming into our atmosphere, and then another 2,500 coming out. I know we weren't having 2,500 satellite launches at that time. So the, the, the sheer mass of potential visitations has got to be staggering. And I think that when the DOD basically came out and said the Tic Tac video represents something that we consider an unknown technology, they're covering up for something. Something is either on the verge of exploding and they don't want to be caught with their pants down. Hey, we were lying to you the whole time. Or they use this cover uh, of the cover of the COVID situation to be able to sort of, you know, sneak it out so we don't look so dishonest. Or there could be something brewing that we'll just have to wait and see what happens. What's your, what's your well, thinking on that? It's interesting you should mention those things. I mean, first off, with, with other life forms in the atmosphere, um, of course, UFOs were born by the sighting of Kenneth Arnold, you know, June the 24th, 1947. And it was one of the ideas that Kenneth Arnold thought might explain some of these sightings, you know, that these were, you know, perhaps life forms. Mm -hmm. Then we had a, a, an English guy some years back now, I think his name was called Trevor Constable. And he was, you know, saying the same type of thing, but he photographed what he claimed was some of these life forms, but you can only photograph them in the infrared. Mm. So it has been speculated about before regarding, you know, life elsewhere in the universe. I think it's a no brainer, Kelly, you know, I really do. Yeah. The problem we have is that 
as our science expands, we gain more knowledge about the universe. Our current estimate is that the visible universe, the word operable word there is visible, the visible universe is 48 billion light years across. Mm. You know, there's an estimated two trillion galaxies. Mm. And of course, within those galaxies, countless zillions of stars and planets. Yeah. So the universe is a lot bigger than we ever imagined. And of course, what that does is, yes, it, it sort of amplifies the possibility of other life forms existing because there's more stars, there's more planets, there's more, you know, there's more galaxies. However, it makes it that more difficult for them to, to get here and find us, you know, because the, the universe is so big. For example, if, if, you, if you invented star travel, like Star Trek tomorrow, interstellar travel, where would you go? The universe is that big. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I think it's an oversimplification just to say that they're coming from A to B and finding us. Some years back, I interviewed a scientist from the States. He's called Michio, Michio Kaku. Yeah, New York. Physicist. He had a book out called Hyperspace. And I caught up with him at his hotel in Manchester. And we had an interview. And he explained things in, in layman's terms to me. And he used a lot of Star Trek terminology. You know, and he said, you know, traveling in linear, you know, from A to B, you know, is just forget about it. You know, you have to bend and warp space. And he explained how you can literally travel from one part of the universe to the other in the blink of an eye. You know, and it is scientifically plausible and possible. So that opens up, you know, travel across the stars. It's a bit like it's a bit like when you see in the in the in the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. You know, she, yeah. she's in that pod and she drops through it and she hasn't gone anywhere, but she did. You know, she went across space and time, which is infinite, but she did it in the blink of an eye. You know, so um, so there's pros and cons against it, but I don't think there's any doubt that there's life elsewhere, and I think it's it would be foolish to say there isn't. You know, uh, whether it's coming here to earth, well, you know, that's still a subject for debate. But we have to remember the stuff about the Department of Defense came out before the COVID pandemic. It was released oh, yeah. in December 2017. So this is not a cover story, well, you know, and we, we also must go back in time just a little bit as well, Kelly. So we must remember that in 1990, the Belgian Air Force captured these things on uh, radars of an F-16 onboard radar. So whilst the Tic Tac and the other videos are great, it does have, you know, precedent. And that was with the Belgian Air Force. And some people kind of poo-pooed it because oh, it's just little old Belgium. Well, Belgium is part of NATO, you know. It's on the front line. And these were, you know, top-of-the-range F-16s, you know. So... Um, you know, you can't write it off. And they, the difference being, of course, the Belgian Air Force held a press conference and said, here it is, you know, and they showed the whole, you know, onboard radar of, of, 
of the F-16. So there is a, there is a precedent for it. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's fascinating. Why, why did the F-16 pick it up and, you know, maybe other aircraft haven't? I don't know. Maybe they did. They just haven't told us about it. Yeah. But uh, it looks like things are certainly going uh, in the right direction, you know, as far as um, official release of information is concerned. So we'll have, we'll have to well, sit tight. Disclosure, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't call it disclosure. I would just, you know, because, I mean, if you talk about disclosure, who would you have tell it? Would you have President Trump? Would you have the Secretary General of the United Nations? Would you have the Pope? Doesn't matter who you right, pick. Right. Somebody right. would say, ah, who we, you know, yeah, exactly. ah, get out of here. But it could well be yeah. that the powers that be haven't been lying as much as we have accused them of. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were as baffled as us, but just because of who they are, they didn't like to admit it, you yeah. know? Yeah. But finally, they were left with no choice but to finally say, well, yeah, UFOs are here, but we won't call them UFOs. We'll call them UAPs. <laughs> right. Same thing, you know. <laughs> We've been lying about UFOs, but not UAPs. <laughs> yeah, it's a play on words. Exactly. So it could well be they've been as baffled as us, Kelly, but they've finally got to a stage where they can't hide it anymore. They still won't admit that they don't know, you know, yeah. because no, no government would ever want to to claim that they didn't have control over its own skies, you know? But basically that's what they have said, but in a different fashion, you know, it's a political way of saying something, you know? You've you've seen countless politicians talk that way, I'm sure, Kelly. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. And for those of you who would like to uh, pick up any of your work where can they where can they reach you is it all on amazon do you have a website yeah i mean all of my books are on amazon but we also have uh, our own website if you just t- type in flyingdispress.com spell disc with a k i'll take you straight to it all of our work is there all of our books my latest book without consent is there plus calvin's and a whole host of other authors from around the world and, and there's a way to contact me as well if, if, if you've got something you want to know or ask. I think I've talked a lot of rubbish. You don't agree with me. That's fine. You know, no problem. But, but uh, you know, please do. Please get in touch. Well, you're certainly a wealth of knowledge when it comes to ufology. You've been doing it a long time. Then it's a revised edition. There's some great stuff that he's added to it. Brought us up to date on some of the, the most compelling cases in England as far as abductions are concerned and more. This is the Phenomenon Report. We journey into the unknown, trying to find answers, questioning answers and answering questions, I hope. At least that's what we did today. So like us, share us, comment on us, and most of all, subscribe. Again, this is Kelly Kleinman, the Phenomenon Report, signing off.